Welcome to Crawford Media and part two of a special look at the impact of AI language models on writing. My name is Hal Crawford and yes, this is my actual voice and these are my actual words. It could be otherwise. You could be listening to fake Hal telling you fake lines made up by a machine that knows nothing but has read everything. If I'd fed text into a machine learning algorithm and given it enough data, it could generate something very like the sentences you just heard. It could sound pretty much like anyone. You wouldn't be able to tell that this voice didn't come from a real person. You might sense though, that something wasn't quite right. The words you just heard were written by language model GPT-3. And the voice was a synthetic version of me, trained on about 30 minutes of dialogue. If I'd had the patience to read a few more thousand words into the machine, it would have been more convincing. The fruits of AI at the moment are still creepy, confusing, and more than a little bit off, but they are getting better rapidly, and they are coming to change our world. Last week, I spoke to the Open University's Mike Sharples and established that yes, there is definitely something to see here. GPT-3 can write poems, summarize difficult texts, and carry on convincingly human text conversations. This week, I'm going to initially focus on education and the impact AIs like GPT-3 are going to have on the way schools and universities operate. Teachers are faced with a new world, not because students have never cheated before, but because cheating has never been this easy. Anybody with an internet connection can get a guest account for GPT-3 and for the cost of about one US cent, you could generate a, a blog, a news item, a short story. So it's cheap to use and it's easy to use. You just give it the title of a student essay or a blog, press the button and it writes three or 400 words of fluent prose. It's beguiling. Mike Sharples is a man who has explored the impact of AI on education and who, despite all the challenges, has come away optimistic. Another education expert who is fundamentally optimistic is Stephen Marshall, a professor of higher education at the Victoria University of Wellington. I think artificial intelligence is something that, particularly in this medium term, has the capacity to really change a fundamental dynamic, which is education historically is basically predicated on the fact that uh, you can't actually change the, the, the quality of somebody's brain. The nice thing about the potential that artificial intelligence plays is its capacity to augment people's cognition in ways that are productive and helpful. Like, you know, like some of the other discussions we've been having, I see it as both a threat and an opportunity. So the threat is that you will, particularly students, will see academic writing as being uh, performing a series of tricks uh, and you know, many of the books and the teachings of academic writing are how to perform those tricks, how to find a thesis, how to produce uh, an argument and a counter argument, how to add appropriate references, uh, how to write an appropriate conclusion. They're all things that you need to do as an academic writer, but then necessary, but not sufficient. You know, as an academic writer, it's not just about performing tricks with words and with language. It's about being able to express deep ideas and being able to convince people, being able to uh, pursue a thesis if you're a PhD student. And so I think the threat 
is that students will just say, well, a machine can do that sort of uh, tricks with words as well as I can, so I may as well use a machine. Mike Sharples has put his finger on the challenge for education here, which in the first instance is a problem for teachers, a problem that an assigned writing task can no longer be set and forget. There are just too many ways that students can contract someone or something to do that writing for them. These means of cheating are becoming cheaper and easier. Competent original writing is no longer proof of work or learning. In this, GPT-3 is just the latest in a line of methods to avoid the unpleasant task of thinking. Here's Stephen Marshall. The model is equivalent to essentially the problem of contract cheating where students who are aware of it and are motivated to seek a, a solution to a, a, a challenge of completing a piece of assessment simply can spend some money and have somebody else do it for them. That's seen as a, as a real problem because of our model of assessment that is essentially based on looking at a product of work rather than paying attention to the processes that led to the generation of that product. The opportunity, I think, is to uh, use them as productive tools in the same way that we've learned to use spell checkers, grammar checkers, word processors as productive tools. Now, each of those tools, when they came in, people railed against them, particularly academics railed against them. Wikipedia, you know, I remember the early discussions about Wikipedia just being uh, crowdsource nonsense. We've come to accept them, we've come to incorporate them, and to some extent we've come to trust them. And I think we've got to try and get to that stage where we can firstly see that academic writing is not just about, you know, as you said, creating form, structure, but it's about expressing meaning and demonstrating knowledge and then use those tools to do it perhaps in a more persuasive or more coherent way. But that's going to take a real revolution in uh, student and academic writing. And I guess my bigger worry is that universities, schools are very slow to change. Mike Sharples came to my attention after he asked GPT-3 to write an essay about the academic topic of learning styles. He posted the result online. The interesting thing about the 400-odd word essay was that the machine had not only competently summarised the field, it had included a footnoted reference. The construct of learning styles is problematic because it fails to account for the processes through which learning styles are shaped. Some students might develop a particular learning style because they have had particular experiences. Others might develop a particular learning style by trying to accommodate to a learning environment that was not well suited to their learning needs. The essay runs on like that for another few hundred words. The reference it gives is to a 1997 paper by Dunn and Dunn in the Journal of Research and Education. That journal is real, and anyone with a passing knowledge of the field will have heard of Rita and Kenneth Dunn. I looked them up. They were distinguished American education scholars. You might assume that an AI that has gone to the trouble of getting all these things right 
could just pop in a real reference, but that's not how GPT-3 works. The reference is fake. There is no paper of the title given, and the Duns did not publish at all that year as far as I can tell. The reference just sounds convincing. Remember, as we heard in the podcast last week, GPT-3 learned to do what it does by guessing the next word in a sentence, over and over. The standard it used to judge its own performance was set by billions of words of the English language published online. A system of this kind isn't good at truth, but it is good at sounding truthful. It's a silver tongue, a fraudster, without any moral compass. The reference in the fake essay didn't take long to check, but consider this. GPT-3 is an expert at making things sound right. It's a chameleon. Are teachers ready to check every single assertion in an essay to see whether it might have been invented? And one of the things I've learned through an academic career is just how difficult it is to change the education system. But everything's interlocked and interlinked. The curriculum, the timetable, the training of uh, teachers and academics, the assessment system, what's regarded as, as good, as worthy, they're all interlocked. And you can't just change one without changing all the others. So my worry is when you bring along a new tool like GPT-3, the first reaction I think is just going to be to ignore it and to say, oh, well, it's you know, an interesting diversion, but it's not going to change the way in which we teach creative writing or academic writing. Then probably to uh, try and uh, counter it you know, as it becomes more powerful to say to students, oh, you mustn't use that, uh, it's not acceptable. And then I hope that some institutions, some academics, some teachers are going to find ways to use it productively. But that's going to take time because it's going to mean changing the academic system. <clears throat> My experience of university was mostly as an undergraduate. And as an undergraduate, I spent most of my time and effort, which admittedly was not always a great deal, ingesting and regurgitating the theories of others, the professors and the great minds we studied. And I spent a long time getting the forms right, the references, the structure, the writing styles, all of the bits and pieces of the various disciplines I was studying. Perhaps that's why I see GPT-3 as so disruptive for the whole of academia, because it's going to call the bluff of so much that counts as academic activity currently. There's a famous quote about a lecture being an experience in which information is moved from the teacher's notes to the student's notes without passing through the brain of either. There's a very real risk that we, with these tools, people feel driven by the expediency of getting a process outcome, i.e. the essay was submitted on time, the essay was marked and a grade returned on time. If you use it as a tool for suggesting rather than a tool for writing, then I think it can be productive. But like every other tool, it has to be used in the hands of, a, of somebody who's a craft worker, who's somebody who has a good understanding of language and how language can be crafted and molded rather than as a substitute. And my worry, I guess, with students is that they'll see it as a substitute for good writing rather than a tool to extend good writing. It's not a way of uh, not bothering how to write, or it's not a way uh, uh, of uh, 
generating academic essays or blogs or opinion pieces or news articles without thinking. Uh, you have to use it. You have to be the, the reflective person. You have to be the one who thinks about, is this correct? Is this accurate? Is this decent? It's not going to do it for itself. Uh, and that's the big challenge, how to get people to reflect on what something like GPT-3 has been writing. I mentioned last week one area GPT-3 actually adds real value without as much capacity for mischief, and that is in summarising complex writing. Stephen Marshall sees this as a great opportunity for teachers. I, I see more positives than negatives in this space because if we talk to a lot of academics, one of the things that we're genuinely struggling with now, researchers and scholars, is identifying the key new things that are appearing in our field in any reasonable period of time and being able to manage the, the fire hose of information that's being directed at us. So we need these tools to, to help us manage that complexity and, and to draw our attention to things. And, and that will include producing summaries. I gave one example last week, but I can't resist the opportunity to get GPT-3 to summarise another famous piece of text. The kind of sentence structure used by early 19th century novelists can now seem pretty convoluted. I decided to ask the AI to boil down the start of a famous novel. Can you guess the original? A lot of people think that if a man has a lot of money, he must want to get married. So when a rich man moves into a neighborhood, all the families there think he might marry one of their daughters. How'd you go? That was Pride and Prejudice, written by GPT-3 and spoken by Nancy the AI. You may be familiar with the original, which I will read now so you've got a point of comparison. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on first entering a neighbourhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of surrounding families that he is considered as the rightful property of someone or other of their daughters. End quote. I couldn't stomach letting Nancy read Jane Austen's original. It's interesting to compare the two versions. Nancy's was easier to understand and the summary is almost right but not quite. She said, all the families in the neighbourhood think the rich man might marry one of their daughters. Might. I think Austen's original implied more certainty than that, and there is the underlying idea of convention and desire. All in all, the AI's use of the word might is a mistake. Should would have been much better. So when a rich man moves into a neighbourhood, all the families there think he should marry one of their daughters. This is typical of the current AI experience. Close enough to be creepy, close enough to be useful, but still a little bit wrong. It seems unavoidable that as soon as GPT-3 and its successes are weaponized, which is my dramatic term for being turned into a product, when that happens, every man and his dog will be using the tools to pre-read difficult texts. Legal cases, journal articles, long essays. Who wants to read those thousands of bloated words? GPT-3 and its successors will be here to tame the fire hose. When people get worried about the, the direction of travel with technology and how it'll dehumanise the human race, I keep thinking that they're not paying attention to the fact that humans remain very committed to the idea of engaging with other humans. 
and, and perhaps the last couple of years have reinforced that for many, many people that the, the value and the importance of human contact for their well-being, uh, for the emotional response. Both experts I spoke to, Stephen and Mike, are optimists who point to the amazing possibilities of this technology. And, as Stephen said, there is what we care about deep down, a connection to other humans. But there's another thing humans care about a great deal, and that's the ability to make a difference, to be competent, to do useful work and to be valued for that work. We have in GPT-3 the first real threat to the uniqueness of skills that until now have been human only, using words. My career has been spent using words. What happens in a world where machines are better at words than us? I think what you're saying is getting to the essence, the kind of existential threat of these machines, which is that oh, you, me, journalists, academics, creative writers, We've spent years on trying to hone our craft, being able to express complicated ideas in uh, well-crafted words. Uh, and we have a pride in our product. And to see a machine at a touch of a button churn out sentence after sentence of coherent text does seem like an existential threat. You say, why bother if you can press a button and the machine will do it better? I think the only way out of this is, in a sense, to rise above it, to say, what, firstly, what can't AI do? Uh, and at the moment, what it can't do is reflect on what it's written. It can't revise what it's written in any meaningful way. And it doesn't care in the way that writers care. The writers care about their readers. The writers care about accuracy. Human writers care about the authenticity Human writers care about expressing lived experience, and an AI doesn't care about any of these things. I think if we can rise above the surface plausibility of what it's producing and get to what do writers care about and how can we express that care through words, then I think at worst, we will have to compete with machines, and at best, we may be able to use them as partners in writing. So, where do we go from here? I asked GPT-3 what came after itself, and it answered, quite simply, GPT-4. I asked it to describe GTP-4, and it incorrectly told me the model had been released in 2018. In the real world, GPT-4 is expected sometime later this year, 2022. Whether it will represent the kind of step change seen in GPT-3 is unknown, but it certainly will be a much bigger neural network. The potential for more unfathomable complexity is there, but also the potential for even more convincing untruths. This problem of untruth is a deep one for the language model. For starters, because it doesn't know anything, it can't know something is wrong. It has no way of representing truth and no logical system at all. It's just a gifted mimic. There is a potential to unite the powers of traditional or symbolic AI with these language models, with the resulting offspring being both fluent and accurate. But there's an even deeper problem here. 
Who or what gets to decide the truth? I've been playing with GPT-3 now for a while and the shock has worn off a bit. The interesting thing is that I've had to change. I'm settling down to a new relationship with language. Writing well, yes, it may be complex, but it's not mystical. Summarizing, editing and answering questions, all these things will one day be the province of machines. It's not the end of the world, but it does require a mental shift. One thing I've been surprised by is how quickly I've accepted the machine's abilities. And there's another thing. My natural impulse is to see GPT-3 as an oracle. For example, in the morning I jokingly asked GPT-3 for its advice on the day ahead. So far it has correctly inferred that I own a dog, like to write, and have trouble with endings. Naturally I asked the modern day oracle how to end this podcast, and typical of oracles, instead of answering, it told me a little story. Hal thought about AI for a little bit, and then decided to go for a walk to clear his head. While he was walking he heard someone playing the piano and it sounded really good. So he followed the sound until he came to a house where an old woman was sitting at a piano, playing beautifully. He thanked her for the music and then asked her if she knew how to write an ending to a story. The woman thought for a moment and then said, It's really quite simple. You just need to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Quite simple, eh? No, it's not simple at all. But it is fascinating. And to use Mike Sharple's word, beguiling. My thanks to Mike and Stephen Marshall, and naturally, a credit to OpenAI for their miraculous creation and the free access they are granting to it. Thanks for listening to Crawford Media. I'm Hal Crawford. See you next time.